Well, brothers and sisters, it's a delight to be with you this morning here at Hoffmantown Baptist Church and uh, to get to open God's Word together. Pastor Steve was so kind in the video. I know y'all are in loving having him and Mary here serving you guys. It, aren't they just a delightful couple together? As Steve referenced in the video, uh, he was our pastor for several years before he retired just a few years ago. And so my wife Karen and our five young children were able to be under his ministry for a number of years. I bring you greetings from Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, one of six seminaries you as a Southern Baptist own. And so you may not think of yourself as a proprietor in Kansas City, but you are as a Southern Baptist. And so we are privileged as Southern Baptists to have six seminaries. One is in Fort Worth, Texas, Southwestern Seminary. One is in Louisville, Kentucky, Southern Seminary. One is in Wake Forest, North Carolina, Southeastern Seminary. Uh, one is in New Orleans, Louisiana, New Orleans Seminary. And one is in Ontario, California, Gateway Seminary. And then the, the sixth and youngest seminary founded in 1957 is in Kansas City, Midwestern Seminary. So let me say on behalf of our students and faculty and staff, thank you for your support through the cooperative program and your generosity from this church and thousands of other Southern Baptist churches like it enable us to train the next generation of pastors and ministers and missionaries who will come and serve churches like this and go to distant places around the globe taking the gospel of Christ. So thank you. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn with me to the gospel of Luke. We'll be looking together at Luke chapter 19. The gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. We're thinking together about the difference a Savior makes. Luke chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10, the difference a Savior makes. Now, it's a story that, that many of us are familiar with, the story of Zacchaeus. In fact, many of us, like, like myself, we learned and in childhood, in RAs or GAs or Sunday school, that, that little song about Zacchaeus. And my gift to you this morning is I will not try to sing it to you. Uh, I, I do not have the gift of music at all. But, but we remember that song and that, that story. But I want you to do with me this morning is to, to re-engage this text and to see it in its full color. Because it's a powerful story of our Lord seeking a sinner and bringing salvation to him, the difference a Savior makes. Verse 1, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, who was but he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, Zacchaeus, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The difference a Savior makes. Do you remember that point in time in your life, or has there been a a point in your life where you came to meet the Savior? For some of you in the room this morning, it was from childhood and your father or your mother or a Sunday school teacher or a children's minister or pastor pointed you to, to Christ and you accepted him as your Savior. For others of you, it was as an adult and after many years, perhaps many decades of living life on your own and, and then you came to, to a place of emptiness and a place of urgent need and perhaps you were, you were awakened to your, your need for Christ through the, the death of a loved one or some personal illness or some life setback that, that awakened you to your need of, of Jesus. For me, it was as a college student. I, I, I grew up in a, in a Southern Baptist church, much like the one we're in today, a conservative, Bible-believing church, and my pastor preached the gospel every Sunday, and I had faithful youth ministers and faithful children ministers and faithful church members around me that my parents would socialize with. And so really, at every major touch point in life, I, I, I rubbed up against the gospel. My parents even paid for me to go to a Christian private school, and I heard the gospel in those settings. And so I'd heard the gospel a thousand times. Times, but that I had never given my life to Christ, and throughout my adolescent years, I was given to sports, and so me being so given to sports really insulated me from many of the uh, the sins that classmates were indulging themselves in. But but I, I was not following Christ, and I went off to college intending to really close the door on, on the spiritual influences in my life, and and really intending to, to to just kind of just kind of follow the way of the world without parental accountability or parental authority in my life, but. Lo and behold, uh, those early weeks and months in college by myself, living on my own in the athletic dorm, is when I came to, instead of closing the door on spiritual influence in my life, I came to feel a pronounced emptiness in my life. And the weight of sin pressed in on me. And my need for Christ became more and more pronounced. And I sensed that with greater urgency with each day. And then I went home on a Sunday morning like this to worship with my, my family and to be home that weekend from college. And that morning, I heard the gospel like never before. And I came forward and gave my life to Christ. And it has made all the difference. I went from wanting to go to law school and being a political science major and hoping to have a career in the practice of law to, to following Christ and then getting to, to share my testimony as a college athlete and then getting to teach some Bible studies and getting to preach some. And before I know it, God's calling me to ministry and we're off to, to seminary and pastoring and, and here we are together this morning. The difference a Savior makes. Now, this story this morning, which is not a parable, but a real story about a real man named Zacchaeus who came to know Christ, presents us with a similarly compelling testimony. He's a, a man who is wealthy, who, a man who made a living out of taking advantage of his neighbor, a man who was identified by his fellow man as being steep in sin. 
But a man who Jesus has affection for, Jesus saves. Notice where our story picks up in verse 1. We see Jesus entering into Jericho. Jericho was an ancient city that's still a city on the map. If you ever go tour the Holy Land, you can tour Jericho. It's there situated just to the east of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and the, and the Jordan River. And, and Jericho was an attractive place, an attractive city. And people would, would go there because of the, the, the nice climate in and, and, and Jericho. And, and what is more, there was economic activity given the, the, uh, the balsam wood industry. And so, so a lot of money changed hands there. And people who lived in Jericho tended, tended to, to be people of affluence. And so Jericho was an attractive town. In, in the ancient world, you, you might have been tempted to buy a timeshare in Jericho. So, so if you're Zacchaeus or if you're a tax collector, Jericho is where you want to be collecting taxes. Because the more money that was being made, the more transactions that were occurring, the better position you were as a tax collector to profit. So Jericho is where the scene begins to unfold, and we're told in verse 1 that Jesus enters Jericho and he's passing through. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has a lot of followers. There's a crowd with them wherever he goes, and this passage reminds us of it because the crowd is so intense, Zacchaeus can't quite worm his way through to see Jesus. But some are following Jesus simply because they want food for their bellies. They've heard that Jesus feeds the multitudes, and if you tag along with Christ, you'll be fed, and he takes care of his people, and so they're following Jesus for food for their bellies. Others are following Christ because they're mesmerized by the signs he's performing. This man is unlike any other man. He heals the lame. He gives sight to the blind. He, he heaven knows, he can even raise the dead. Others are following Jesus because they are spellbounded by his teaching. He's unlike their rabbis. This man teaches as one having authority. So you have, you have those who are following Jesus for all these different reasons, but some are following Jesus for pure motives who have real need, a spiritual need, and Jesus is ministering to their heart in a way no one else can. So he's passing along, and this type of a caravan is traveling with him. We see in verse 2 this person introduced to us by the name of Zacchaeus, and this is where we see developing the first major point of the passage, and thus the first major point of the sermon, the sinner Jesus sought. The sinner Jesus sought. Verse 2. This man, called by the name of Zacchaeus, was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, we've already been introduced to the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 with the calling of Matthew, the disciple. And when Jesus calls Matthew, people are astonished that Jesus is calling Matthew as a disciple because Matthew is a publican, another name for a tax collector. And tax collectors are corrupt. They make money, again, by skimming off the top. It's an attractive racket they have. They make money by skimming off the top of, of the taxes that are being collected. And everyone knows that it's not like some inside game that, that no one knows that, that, the, that the system is corrupt. Everyone knows it. And so to preside over the system, you have to be corrupt yourself. And so 
Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and every time we see tax collectors turn up in the Gospels, we are reminded that they are corrupt individuals. But notice Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. Verse 2 tells us that he was a chief tax collector. The only one so designated in the Gospels. Chief tax collector, and thus the end of verse 2, he was rich. Now, I am 43 years old. I turned 43 just a couple weeks ago. And uh, my wife and I, as, as a matter of kind of personal pride, we have done our own taxes our whole lives in marriage until last year. And uh, every year my wife would say, sweetie, can't we pay someone to do our taxes? And being the loving, sympathetic, responsive husband, I would always say, no. Come on, dear. I give her a little pep talk. We can do these ourselves. We, we, we have college degrees. This can't be that hard. And so, so over the years, we would always pay you know, $59.99 or $69.99 and get a little help from TurboTax and pay our taxes. Well, over the years, ministry you know, makes your taxes more complicated if you're a minister. And then as a seminary president, I find myself preaching in states like New Mexico. Well, every time you preach in a different state, guess what? You got to file a tax return from that state. And then over the years, you know, you do a little investment or two. And so this gets rather complicated. And so, so every year for us, it's massive file keeping by my wife, massive record keeping. And then we come to that point in January where she begins to say, we need to do our taxes. And I put her off. And then February, we need to do our taxes. And we put her off. And finally, you know, kind of in March-ish, we get serious about it. Well, you guys know what that process is like. By the time you finish that process every year, you take typically aren't thinking higher of the IRS, right? Well, in the ancient world, the view of the tax collector was much worse than that because not only was the system complicated and Byzantine, it was also corrupt. And this little guy named Zacchaeus, who lives down the street, is taking your money. The anger you would feel, the indignation you would feel. But this guy shows up in verse 2, and he's looking for Jesus. Now, evidently, unlike those who simply want food for their bellies, or unlike those who are entertained by Jesus' miracles, or unlike those who are mesmerized by his teaching, Zacchaeus' motives are sincere. He's got more money than anyone else in town, good grief, but he knows that can't satisfy him. And so he goes looking, he goes searching. In fact, we might even refer to Zacchaeus as a seeker. He goes looking. Verse 3, he's trying to see who Jesus was. He's unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And perhaps that adds to the rub of it all. He's a, the smallest guy in town who's also the richest guy in town, who's also the most crooked guy in town. You see? So evidently, Zacchaeus, he, he's, in, he, he's, you know, he's an imaginative. He wants to see Jesus. He can't worm his way through the crowd. So verse 4 tells us, 
He runs on ahead. He climbs up into a sycamore tree, the perfect tree for Zacchaeus to climb because sycamore trees go to, grow to about 40, maybe 50 feet high, but they have these long, long limbs that hang low to the ground that often touch the ground. And so you could kind of climb on that low limb from the ground and shimmy your way up and climb up the tree. And so that's what Zacchaeus does. He, he goes to the sycamore tree. He, he kind of hops on a low-hanging limb and he shimmies up it and he's positioned up in this tree to watch as Jesus passes by. He's positioned to see Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus came to the place. He stops. He looks up to him and notice he calls him by name. Now, nothing about this passage or surrounding passage tells us that Jesus knows who he is. Evidently, there has been no previous interaction, no, no previous relationship, but Jesus, with divine knowledge as the Son of God, knows exactly who this This is Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is seeking out the Savior, but the Savior is seeking out Zacchaeus. Isn't that how your conversion story was? That's how mine was. There was conviction in my life. The Holy Spirit was pressing in on me. I was feeling conviction for that sin and, and, a, and a, a need for Christ. But also now I see as, as, as time has, has given me the opportunity to reflect back as God was working in my life and was bringing influences in my life for the gospel and was strategically placing people in my life to appoint me to Christ. And I came to a point where I was seeking the Savior, but, but the Savior was seeking me. That's what's taking place here. Jesus looks up. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. That statement is mind-blowing. Because Jesus, the Messiah, He wants to stay at the house of the guy who everyone in town knows is corrupt. The guy who everyone knows in town is the chief of sinners. The guy who everyone in town hates. That's the guy, Jesus, wants to dine with and stay with. What do we know about Zacchaeus? We know at this point he's very wealthy. We know he's very corrupt. We know he's very hated. We know he's very short. We know he's very curious. We know he's very determined. He runs ahead and scampers up the tree. We know he's very brave. He's willing to interject himself in the midst of this crowd who doesn't like him. And we imagine Jesus stopping Looking, calling, inviting himself to his house. And perhaps the disciples are there. You can imagine what they're thinking. Some of them are conflicted like, Jesus, what are you doing? Perhaps Judas is thinking, this would be great if he joined our team because he has money and he could, you know, he could tithe to the organization. But what the crowd thinks is why would Jesus be interested in this sinner? What they miss is Jesus is interested in this man because he's a sinner. You see, 
This is the sinner Jesus sought. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and he has affection for Zacchaeus. He has concern for Zacchaeus, and he's drawn to Zacchaeus, not in spite of his sin, but because of his sin. Jesus saves sinners. Those who have nothing commendable about them are those who have everything commendable about them to Jesus. I read a story a few years ago in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal about, about Apple. We all know the corporation Apple. We all got our iPhones in our pockets and our iPads at home. And so we, we all know what Apple is, right? And it was an interesting story about how Apple was looking to expand their North Carolina uh, their North Carolina co- office complex there, and they needed to grow it. Well, like these corporations do when they, they want to e- expand their property, expand their site, the last thing they want to happen is like for the neighbors to know they're looking to expand their property. Because, well, that'll do. That'll drive up the price everywhere it wants, right? And so Apple had, had very quietly, very covertly began to strategically buy up property around them. So when the time was right, they would have that property to, to actually expand their, expand their, their office complex and, and be able to do that. Well, over a period of months and years, they had bought up every single piece of property around them but one little house. The little house was like the hole in the donut. It was in the middle of the property they wanted, and they had managed to get every other piece of property but this little house. Well, the house was lived in by this couple who had bought it in the early 70s for $6,000. Not much money then or now. They bought this house for $6,000 in the early 70s. Evidently, it was a fixer-upper. Well, they were in this house, and they had raised their kids in this house, and now you know a half century had gone by. And, and they weren't trying to be obstinate or difficult or hold out for top dollar. They just didn't want to sell their home. It was their house. Well, Apple made an offer. They declined. Apple made an offer. They declined. Apple made an offer. They declined. The negotiations went back and forth. So in the final point, when Apple bought this home that this couple had paid $6,000 for in the 1970s, Apple bought this home for $1.7 million. Not bad if you're the couple. Why would Apple do that? Because Apple placed a value on this piece of property unlike any value anyone else would place on it. Why? Because they wanted it. That's sort of how Jesus sees sinners. And so those, though Jesus enters the economy of life and he, he changes the price tags on everything. And people who are upstanding and morally righteous and clean and know the law, like the Pharisees, Jesus said, that's worth nothing. But the sinner who's committed much sin but is broken by that sin and convicted by that sin and is wanting, to, wanting forgiveness for that sin, Jesus places the highest value on that person of all. And he says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you see the sinner Jesus sought? Now, notice with me in verse 6, the salvation Jesus wrought. The salvation Jesus wrought. Notice verse 6. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. So, So Zacchaeus hurries, 
He comes down and he receives him, Jesus, receives Jesus gladly into his home. So again, this this is a, a special moment. Zacchaeus receives the Savior into his home, and Zacchaeus is, is just overwhelmed with joy that, that Jesus would, would care for him. But verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So the, the crowd is not only perplexed by this, they are indignant by this. They are angered by this. If this man is a holy man, Jesus, he should want to dine with us, the Pharisees, us, the religious leaders. He should ask to stay with us, the the religious rulers. But you mean he wants to stay with Zacchaeus? Well, notice verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped, said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. What is going on here? Zacchaeus feels conviction. He feels forgiveness. And he immediately wants to make right every wrong he's committed. And in the Old Testament, in places like Leviticus chapter 6, and Numbers chapter 5, and Exodus chapter 22, we see presented very clearly the Old Testament expectations for restitution. You've offended your brother this way. You've taken advantage of your neighbor this way. Here are what the, the biblical, legal expectations of restitution are. It's spelled out clearly. And here's the takeaway. Zacchaeus transcends in every way, every biblical, legal expectation for restitution. You see? Zacchaeus doesn't take a step back and get out a piece of paper and draw a T-square. And Okay, if I follow Christ, here's what it's going to cost me. Here's what I'm going to have to do to make my sins right. And sort of do a, a tedious, careful calculation as to exactly what it will cost him to follow Jesus. No. Who did that? Well, we won't look over it for the sake of time, but the previous chapter, that's what the rich young ruler did, right? The rich young ruler who similarly encountered Christ, he came running before Jesus. He was young and wealthy and had everything going for him. and He was a hot evangelistic prospect, but he had an idol, his wealth, and Jesus challenged him on his, on his idol, and he went away lost because he had much by way of possessions. Zacchaeus, clearly, the Spirit is working in his life. Clearly, he's feeling conviction, and he just shoves all his chips to the table and says, every one I've done wrong, I'm going to make it right. Every offense I've committed, I'm going to seek double restitution. And he gives it all back. What is taking place in the life of Zacchaeus? Or we might ask the question, what type of salvation has Jesus wrought in this man's life? Well, notice, first of all, it's quick obedience. I mean, Zacchaeus sees the master 
The master says, come down. I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus is ripe and ready for conversion. And he responds quickly. Notice he also responds publicly. Zacchaeus isn't shuffling around trying to figure out, you know, a quiet afternoon when Jesus has withdrawn from the crowd to have a a, a placid conversation and and just kind of do all this in private. Moreover, he's not like Nicodemus who seeks out Jesus at night, worried about what his fellow man may think. This is taking place in front of everyone. The biggest scoundrel in the city is engaging with the master and is making right all of his wrongs. The stakes are high. It's quick obedience. It's public obedience. It's happy obedience. You get a sense that he is just so touched, so overwhelmed, He's happy to obey. Why? Because he has been forgiven. All of this is though, is though Zacchaeus is responding in spades. My wife is with me this morning, Karen, and we, we're from Mobile, Alabama, where we both grew up and met and were married there. And We have an old friend who, who frankly, we haven't heard from in, in a number of years now, but was, was a, a friend from back in those days. And he was a part of the same church we were a part of. And he became a believer and was a part of the same Bible study, discipleship group I was a part of for a number of years. Well, well Richard was about, is about 12, 15 years older than I am. And he was a real rascal before he met Jesus. Uh, he owned a nightclub named Pandora's Box. Just that name sounds, ugh. You know, what's going on in there? Well, he owned a nightclub named Pandora's Box as a young man in his 20s and 30s. Well, he became a believer about the age of 35. And what do you do if you're a nightclub owner? And that's like all you have, that's your income, that's your money. And, but you become a believer, so he senses he ought not be in the nightclub business. Well, he's like 35 years old, doesn't know what to do, but he knows he's disgusted by his former way of life, knows it doesn't honor the Lord. No, he doesn't want to just like perpetuate the nightclub under a new owner and, and so you'll sell it to another nightclub owner. So he just goes and burns the place down. Not to collect insurance money nor to harm anyone within it, but that was his response to all of what he had presided over before. He just wanted, he wanted all of it out of his life in such an emphatic, clean break. He just burned down the nightclub he owned. I'm not saying we need to do that. (laughs) I am saying we need to err on the side of over-confessing and over-repenting not under-confessing and under-repenting. Which leads me to the final observation about this salvation Jesus wrought. It's quick obedience, it's public obedience, it's happy obedience. It is repentant obedience. How do you know he's repentant? Because the acts he does in response or not one who is hedging his bets, crossing his fingers, shuffling his feet. It's one who is serious about following the Savior. Repentance. Uh, we have five children, as has been referenced, and uh, our two oldest daughters now are uh, one just turned 17, the other one will turn 16 here in a few weeks. And uh, sweet, happy, fun, fun years in the Allen house. Well, a few years ago, they both were playing junior high girls basketball. Uh, you've seen me, my wife, they both are pretty tall. And so they were natural prospects for the junior high girls basketball team. And, 
uh, the season was, you know, had been going about. And, you know, junior high girls basketball may not sound real important to you. And it didn't sound real important to me until my daughters were on the team. And, and then it's rather important. And you prioritize the games you go, and these games matter, and you want their team to win. Well, they had had a relatively good season and, you know, had won more games than they lost. And it was the end of the season, the, the tournament. And the end of the season tournament with these other little private schools they play was held in this little private school gym. And, you know, the gym seats about 500 people, but there, there are probably like 50 parents in the stadiums. It's a day game, and these games are just, you know, one after the other after the other to try to run through the tournament in a couple of days. So we're there, and we're watching the game, and, and, uh, and it was very evident to me as an onlooker that the referees needed a little help. And uh, look, if, if, you know, if the carpenter needs help, you grab a hammer. If the painter needs help, you grab a brush. If the ref needs help, it's the Christian thing to do to speak up and help him, right? And uh, we're there, and uh, we're watching the game, and, and the, we're approaching halftime, and the fouls are 8 to 2. Uh, the refs have called 8 fouls on our team, uh, 2 fouls on, on the other team, and we're there. And it's that moment when the other team is about to shoot a free throw, and the gym is drop dead quiet. And I wasn't like angry. I mean, I'm not a yeller. I'm never at the games. I'm not a yeller at the game. But I, I just, you know, in a clear voice just said, uh, the fouls are eight to two refs. Let's even it up. And like every head in the gym turns and looks at us. My wife elbows me. I cannot believe you just yelled. I, I said, sweetie, I didn't yell. I just made a public observation. And that's all I did. And so this morning I said to you, I'm not angry, I'm not yelling, but I'm going to make a, a public observation. I don't hear repentance preach much in churches. I'm in Southern Baptist churches all the time. I'm in evangelical churches all the time. Repentance has went the bay, way of the waterbed and the El Camino. It went out of style in the 1980s. You don't hear it preached anymore. You don't hear it taught anymore. You don't hear it celebrated anymore. I remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, repentance is a good thing. Repentance is a grace. Repentance is the doorway you walk through to enter into the room of forgiveness. Repentance is the turnstile you pass through to enter into the arena of God's grace. And this morning, if you have never repented, or if repentance isn't a way of life for you where you periodically find yourself repenting to your spouse, or repenting to your pastor, or repenting to your fellow church member, or repenting to your boss, or repenting to your employee, then perhaps you have desensitized yourself to the Christian life and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Repentance. Jesus works in this man's life to such a degree that repentance takes place. Now, notice quickly with me, thirdly, we've seen the sinner Jesus sought, the salvation Jesus wrought. See with me, thirdly, the sermon Jesus brought. Notice verses 9 and 10. Jesus ends this exchange with a, a brief little sermon. Notice what he says. 
Today, salvation has come to this house because he too was a son of Abraham. The, the Jews were always concerned about who was a son of Abraham, who's an authentic son of Abraham. And it was all about the, the, the keeping of the law and the, 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 the mark on the flesh. Who was an authentic son of Abraham? Of course, we read our Bibles and we see it was never about who was the physical son of Abraham, but who was the spiritual son of Abraham. And Jesus is saying this, you're so concerned about whether or not you or they are a son of Abraham. This man is a son of Abraham in the way that matters. He's just shown to be a spiritual son of Abraham. So verse 10, Jesus says, the sermon, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke 15, Jesus gives three parables or one parable with three different dimensions to it. The lost sheep, he leaves the 99 to go after the one. The lost coin, he cleans the house, searches the house for the one lost coin. The prodigal son, the father runs towards the son who comes home in repentance. You see, that is our Savior. Have you met this Savior? Has there been a moment in your life when you can reflect even now and remember when you repented? Remember when you gave your life to Jesus? Remember when he changed your life? If not, this can be that day. And I tell you this morning, there's one type of sinner Jesus especially delights in saving, and that's the type of sin you've been committing. There is no sin so dark, no life so depraved, that the gospel of Jesus can't reach and save. So I say to you this morning, in just a moment, we're going to pray and have a hymn of response, and we're going to sing out to the Lord in worship. And if the Lord has touched your heart today, I want to invite you to come. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to encourage you in Christ. We'd love to tell you how you can meet the Savior. Perhaps you want to join this church or, 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 or some other spiritual decision the Lord has prompted your heart with. You come as we sing together. I want to invite you to do that. I'll be happy to encourage you personally, to pray with you personally, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in this moment. We thank you for this story we see. We thank you for the grace of Christ that shows up in the life of this man, Zacchaeus. And Father, I pray this morning for any of us in the room today who would have to candidly acknowledge that they have never met the Savior. They don't know personally the difference a Savior makes because they have never experienced that. And Father, I pray today that, that your spirit will work in hearts. Father, I pray more broadly for other spiritual decisions to join this church or to be baptized or, or to, to, to surrender to a call to ministry, to rededicate the life. Whatever it is that you have touched in people's hearts today, I pray, Father, they would respond in obedience. And Father, I pray collectively as a congregation that this church will be busy about the ministry of finding sinners and pointing them to Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing out to the Lord just a, a couple of verses here. If God has touched your heart, you come today so we can pray with you and encourage you in Him. Lead us, brothers, we sing. Let's sing together before the Lord. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling.
we're going to sing just one more stanza. So if the Lord has touched your heart, you come now. Lead us, brother. Let's sing together. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? He's pleading for you and for me. Why should we so much. Just remain standing. Um, we're going to close momentarily. When we do, I'll be down front, happy to greet you. If I can encourage you in the Lord in any way, pray for you, be delighted to serve you in that way. So please come by. Uh, for the rest of you, thank you for being here. I will pray for you guys as a church family that the year 2020 will be one of real blessing and moving forward under the Lord's leadership and will. The Lord bless you. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed. <laughs>